Thank you for listening to the Radiant Church Podcast. For more information, visit us at weareradiant.com. We're in a series called Define the Relationship, and today it's going to get a little weird talking about sex and intimacy. And so last week he told you this, if you have a child or a middle or high school student in here and you want to get them out, now is your chance. This is a judgment-free zone. Uh, Let me say this to the parents of middle and high school students. First of all, praying for you. But secondly, there's no better place than to hear about sex and intimacy than in the house of God, in my opinion. It's way better than hearing it from a middle school friend because middle schoolers are stupid, honestly. And, uh, and so my hope is this, is that today encourages and inspires you as we go to God's word for this. One last thought before I jump in, and it's simply this. It's a weird topic to talk about as a guest at a church, but this is like my seventh or eighth time preaching here. I don't feel like a guest. I feel like crazy Uncle Jason, who's got something to share with you today. It's going to get a little weird, but I believe it's going to be really good. So let's pray, and then let's get to work today. God, would you speak to us, challenge us, change us. May we leave not having heard the words from a speaker, but having heard your voice. God, you know I've prepared thoughts and words, but none of these matter unless you show up and speak. So do what only you can do and have your way in this place here and now. And it's in the powerful name of Jesus that we pray. Come on, somebody say amen, amen, amen. All right, let's get to work, everybody. Have you ever ever walked into a conversation at the exact wrong moment? You ever had this happen to you? Some years ago, I was on my way into the Brandon Mall. Shout out to your Brandon location and Pastor June, shout out. I was going into the Brandon Mall and I was walking past the Cheesecake Factory. And Cheesecake Factory has had a lot of hate online recently, none from me, I love that place. And, And I go walking past Cheesecake Factory and there's two ladies sitting outside eating their Cheesecake Factory. And as I walk by, one of the ladies slams her fork and her knife down on the table and she says these four words. She said, it's just bleeping sex. And then we locked eyes. (laughs) And I like weird moments. And so I just kind of stared at her and looked at her, and she just kind of nervously got back to cutting whatever she was eating. And here's the question. Is it just sex? Like, is sex just physical? Is it just two bodies? Is it just a moment of pleasure, but there's no real consequence to it? Is sex all that it is. And as a Christian, I believe the answer is no. There is something beautiful and sacred and profound happening. There is something special happening. I can prove it to you in a lot of ways. One of the ways I can prove it to you is this. Some years ago, I had a man ask to come meet with me. He comes into my office. It's a 57-year-old man. He was built like a refrigerator. My man was strong. He wore a tiny shirt and his muscles had muscles, kind of like Pastor Aaron, everybody. And um, So he kind of like walks in like this and he sits down and I say, so what's up, man? And this grown man dissolves into a million tears. I'm like, bro, compose yourself. He's got like snot coming out of places. And I said, what is going on? And he said, God has been convicting me and I had to share this with someone. When I was seven years old, 50 years ago, my uncle assaulted me. For 50 years I've carried that and for 50 years I've shared it with no one. If sex is just sex, then that wouldn't be that big of a deal, probably. But we know there's something so much more profound. We know there's something beautiful and sacred that happens in the God context of marriage, but we also understand that sex outside of marriage leaves us hurting and broken. That This is the reason that in the context of marriage, when a couple has sex, they look at each other and they share this beautiful bond because sex is a reminder of the covenant that they made when they got married. 
two individual lives temporarily joining as one, symbolizing the fact that when we get married, God takes two people and supernaturally he makes us one. But conversely, this is the reason that when you have sex outside of marriage, your soul looks around for that person you're committed to. And when you're not committed, when you're just another hookup, when it's just another fling, when it's just a fun Friday night, you look around. It's the reason your soul feels broken and disconnected because it's not just sex. It's not. So I think we have a wrong definition of sex. And so in this series, DTR, I wanted to find what sex and intimacy looks like, but I wanted to find it God's way. If you have your message notes, I want you to write some stuff down. Here's some definitions I think people have for sex. Some people think of sex as God. Some people think of it as gross. And some people think of it as a gift. And let me start with the first one. Some people think of sex as God. Well, what does it mean? It means we worship sex. It means we'll do anything to get it. It means we will do anything to make ourselves happy, to please ourselves. And really what we're saying is God's way is not the best way. It's my way that ultimately is the one that's followed. Well, we live in a hyper-sexualized culture, don't we, everybody? Like, you can't watch a football game without a commercial showing a couple ripping their clothes off and jumping into bed together. You can't go through the checkout line at a grocery store without seeing a magazine, and the magazines are weird. You know, it's like a women's magazine. It'll say 13 ways to blow his mind. Even, <laughs> even magazines for dudes. It's like Popular Mechanics Magazine, three ways to tune her engine. You're like, what is this? <laughs> Makes no sense at all. We live in an over-sexualized world. Everything is sexual. If you go on Amazon.com today, you'll see this. If you search for the term marriage for books, you'll find 200,000 titles on marriage. Search for attraction, you'll find 90,000. Search for books on sex, over 300,000. More than marriage and attraction combined. We worship it, we glorify it. It's all that we think about. It consumes our mind, it consumes our hearts. And it has this way of derailing our whole lives. It's never intended to be a, a god. The second thing we tend to think about with sex is some people unfortunately think of sex as gross. And if you grow up in church, this might be the reason. Some churches are so well-meaning, but the message that they send is this. Sex is bad, it's dirty, it's gross, and then you get married, and as soon as you get married, now it's good, have fun. <laughs> you see how psychologically damaging this can be to a person? Some people have guilt, they have weird sexual hangups because they were told their whole life that it's so bad and it's so dirty and therefore if you do it, you become that, you become dirty. When I was in high school, went to a big church and it was a great church, but when I was 14 or 15, my youth pastor moved away and they didn't hire a new youth pastor right away. And so for a couple years, different moms and dads would take turns sharing at our youth ministry, teaching students about everything about God and life. And I'll never forget one day, it was one of the weirdest experiences I've ever had. A man came in and he said, kids, tonight we're gonna spend our whole night talking about God's design for sex. Every student's on the edge of their seats in this moment. And then he did something. He pulled out a pack of Oreos. Anybody in this place love Oreos? And I'm like, this boy right here, I love Oreos. I think Oreos should start at double stuffed. I think double stuffed should be normal. Single stuff is a mistake. Now they have Oreo thins. Can we talk about this for a moment? You have to eat twice as many to get the same Oreo high. You're kidding yourself. So he takes these Oreos and he gives every kid in the room an Oreo. He said, here's what I want you to do. Everybody take your Oreo, smell it. We all smelled the Oreo. Because how many of you want it? We all raised our hand. He said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take it and open it. I want you to lick the inside and I want you to close it back up. And I want you to hand it to the person on your right. So we're just like, okay. 
He said, now that you have it, I want you to lick one side of the Oreo and hand it to the person on your right. So you lick it and you hand it and it's like, oh, they take it. Take it, I want you to lick the dry side of the Oreo, lick it and hand it to the person on your right. This was before COVID, everybody. <laughs> this might be the reason for COVID, everybody. Okay. He said, here, one last one. I want you to take it. I want you to open it. I want you to spit just a little bit inside of the Oreo, close it up, and hand it to the person on your right. Now you've got like Oreo juice running down your hands. Oh, like that's too far in this story for you. Like, right. So now you're holding this like disintegrating, disgusting Oreo in your hands that people have licked and spit on. They've handed it to you. And the guy goes, how many of you would like to eat the Oreo you're holding right now? And everybody's like, ugh. There's that one weird kid in the back who's like, I'll still eat it, you know. (laughs) He said, I want you to look at the Oreo that's in your hand. This is what sex does to you before you're married. It makes you disgusting, dirty, unwanted, nasty. Your whole life crumbles and falls apart. And I remember as like a 14 or 15-year-old boy sitting in youth church thinking, I got to protect my Oreo. That's what's got to happen, right? (laughs) But think of the message it sends. The message it sends is it's disgusting, gross, and bad, and if you do it, you're disgusting, gross, and bad as well. We've missed the point. Take it a step farther. A teenager is told in church, sex is bad, 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 bad. Then they get a boyfriend or girlfriend, and they kiss them, they hold hands, and it feels good. And so maybe they push the boundaries a little bit, and with each step of pushing the boundaries, it feels better and better and better, and they feel conflicted because they've been told their whole life it's bad, but everything they're doing feels good. Can you see how this could affect a person? They might think if you're hiding something from me, what else are you hiding about God? And we think that sex is bad and gross. Never in the Bible does it teach that sex is bad or gross. In fact, the third definition is the true definition. Sex is actually a gift. Scripture teaches that sex, listen to this, was God's idea. Some of you are like, not even Christians yet, and you're like, that might push me over the edge. I'm all in, right? Like, Sex was always God's idea, in fact, I want you to get this, in the proper context and timing of marriage, sex is actually worshiping God. I preached this at my church some time ago, had this 80-something-year-old man come up to me after service, he goes, Jason, if sex is worship, I'm going to go home and try to worship a little bit. And I'm like, I'm not shaking your hand. I want you to understand this. Sex was God's idea. God created the world. He spoke the world into existence. It's so amazing that when God creates the world, he creates it and he places humanity in this place called the Garden of Eden. Do you know what Eden means if you translated it from Hebrew? Eden means pleasure and delight. God places them in a place of pleasure and delight, not a place where they feel beat down or exhausted not a place where they feel like they'll never measure up, not a place where shame runs rampant. He puts them in a place of pleasure and delight. And God's idea was that sex, in the context and in the safety of marriage, would be a place full of pleasure and delight for us. A lot of people think, well, Jason, you don't, you don't really understand. I really can't wait till marriage because I need sex. I want you to listen to me. You do not need sex You need food and water and air. You need shelter. You may want something, but it is not a need. But can I tell you what is a craving of your soul? It's not sex. It's not. The the craving of your soul is intimacy. Sex is actually the byproduct of intimacy. Intimacy means an inner closeness and a depth of relationship. 
Intimacy is to be fully known by someone else and to be fully loved by them as well. That there are some places that will teach you stuff that sex is only for procreation. Here's the verse they use, Genesis 1.28. It says, God blessed them and he said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. I wanna submit to you, sex is for procreation, but God in his infinite love for you and me also decided that sex should be for recreation, but in the safety, in the boundaries, in the context of a God-honoring marriage. Now, to help you understand this, here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to go back to the beginning of the Bible, and I'd like to look at the story of creation to show you God's intention, the four elements of intimacy. And here's what you need to understand. In a God-honoring marriage, if any one of these are off, it kind of derails everything else. But when you get these four things right, it changes everything for you. In Genesis 1, God speaks the world into existence. With the power of his voice, he hangs the sun, the moon, and the stars. He fills the sky with birds and the fish with seas. He even creates those weird fish at the bottom of the ocean that we haven't even discovered yet. He fills the galaxies with planets and solar systems farther than we'll ever be able to reach with modern science. Scientists believe that there are more stars in the universe than there are grains of sand on earth. They try to get your mind around that and then remember that God created all of this with his voice. And at the end of his creation, God pushes some dirt together, and it says he breathes into the nostrils of this dirt pile the breath of life. The word breath is the same word we would translate in English to the word spirit. It's like God breathes his spirit into Adam, and Adam came to life. This, this is the reason you need to understand something special about you, is that when you breathe, every breath you take is a reminder that you are living on the borrowed breath of God. It's also a reminder that when you come to places like this and you lift your hands and you use your voice to worship, the reason your soul feels so connected to God, the reason you say things like, I can't explain it, but I just feel so at home when I'm worshiping is because you are returning your voice, you are returning your breath to the one who gave it to you in the first place. So God creates man, and it says about Adam that Adam had one job. He was living in the Garden of Eden, living the bachelor's paradise. The whole world is his public toilet. He's walking around naked, living the dream. And it says about Adam, Genesis 2, verse 20, it says, the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky and the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. Adam had everything he could have wanted, but the one thing he was missing, the one place in scripture after God creates and says it's good, 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 is when God says it's not good for man to be alone. Verse 21, so the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, probably not that hard, and while he was sleeping, he took out one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Let me pause here for just a moment and say this. In the New Testament, Paul uses the term flesh to talk about our sinful desires and our sinful nature. I want you to notice in Adam's story, before God brings him the woman of his dreams, he has to close up the place of flesh. Let me say to all the single men in the room for just a moment, look me right in the eyes. Don't you dare ask God to bring you the woman of your dreams until you've closed up the places of flesh in your own life. If you're addicted to porn, kill it. It is an intimacy killer. If you find yourself addicted to undressing every person with your eyes, stop it. Take every thought captive and make it subject to the authority of Christ, as Paul says. You do whatever it takes to close up the place of flesh. Got real quiet up in here, verse 22. 
Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The word for woman in Hebrew literally means out of me. So picture this. Adam is in a deep sleep. He comes to from this deep sleep, and there comes walking to him this beautiful woman. She's beautiful. She's different. She's naked. And he looks at her, and they're similar, but they're different. Like where there are hard lines on him, there are curves on her. Where he is strong, she seems delicate. There's beautiful intricacies that are similar and they're different. And when he sees her, all of a sudden, Adam goes goes from living the bachelor's dream to this beautiful poetic guy. I mean, it's like women do this to us. Verse 23, then the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. For when I saw her, I was like, whoa, man. It's not in the Bible, for she was taken (laughs) out of the man. And then here is when scripture changes back to the lesson for you, and here's the four elements of intimacy. That is why a man, number one, leaves his father and mother, and number two, is united to his wife, and they, number three, become one flesh. Verse 25, Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt, number four, they felt no Shame. The four elements of intimacy, if you have your notes, write these down. Number one is the element of value. If, if intimacy is going to thrive, we have to value each other. The scripture says that's why a man leaves his father and his mother. Can I tell you one of the biggest mistakes I see couples make in marriage is they don't understand that when you get married, all of your relationships change. Marriage is about reprioritizing your relationships. He says you leave your mother and father Can I tell you what you're supposed to do? When you get married, your spouse becomes your number one. Some of the people in the room are like, well, Jason, I thought God was supposed to be number one. In theology, we would say that God is preeminent. That means God is above number one. He's the one our whole world revolves around. And the way we honor God is by honoring our spouse and declaring that they are number one and no one else competes for that seat. They're number one. The mistake I see a lot of couples make is they'll center their lives around things that are good things. They're just not meant to be number one. Couples will revolve their whole world around their kids, and their kids become number one. And then the kids grow up and move off to go to college, and mom and dad are in their 50s, and they feel like they're disconnected from each other. It's the reason the 50s is one of the largest age groups of divorce in our country. Couples that have been married for 20-plus years get divorced because they centered their whole world around their kids, and they realized, they forgot to realize that kids are at best a temporary assignment. Your spouse is the one that you're in covenant with, and he or she is number one. Well, one of the ways that I believe that as followers of Jesus, we should live a life that's a testimony to the world around us is that in our marriage, when we prioritize and value our spouse as number one, our words better be words that bring life. Here's the question. Do your words validate and add value? Do your words validate? Do they build up or do they tear down? Some years ago, I had a couple come to meet me for counseling, and it was this really interesting moment because before they came, all I knew was that they were having some compatibility issues. And I've counseled hundreds of couples over the years, and like anecdotally, usually when couples come for counseling because of a mismatched desire, nine times out of 10, by my observation, it's the man who wants to have sex and intimacy more than the woman. I know that's not true everywhere, but in my experience, that's what the math has been. And this couple comes in and they sit down with me and I say, so what's going on? And the wife just goes, look, I've tried everything and I'm running out of room. I just, I'm running out of patience. I don't know what to do. I love my husband. I want to be a great wife to him. I want to be a great mom to my kids, but I've tried everything and he just continues to reject me. 
I said, what does it mean? She goes, he works all day. When he comes home, all he wants to do is say hi to the kids, get something to drink, and sit down in front of the computer and play video games into the wee hours of the night. She goes, I've done everything I possibly can to woo him to spend time with me. I'll do anything to get him to come sleep with me. He rejects me all the time. And I looked at the man and I went, huh, what? And, and she goes, I, I don't know what to do. So I said to the man, I was like, okay, well, there's always two sides to the story. What is your side? He goes, she's right. He goes, the truth is I'm just not attracted to her anymore. He said, she's gained some weight. I just don't, I don't feel the way I used to, so that's why. And then he said these dumb words. He said, um, so what do you think? I said, you don't know, you don't want to know what I think. He goes, yeah, I do. I said, okay, fine. Buckle in, homie. I said, I think you're an idiot. Think you're a moron. You've got a wife who's begging to be connected to you and you're throwing it away for video games. Are you kidding me right now? You entered a covenant relationship and you promised for better or worse, for richer or poorer, in sickness and health till death do us part to pursue her. And the moment things don't go your way, you cut and run. You said she's gained weight. She had your children. What is wrong with you? I I was screaming at this guy at this point. I'm not a very good counselor. Um, (laughs) After they left, my staff walked in. They're like, we couldn't hear what you said, but it got really loud. Are you okay? And I said, I'm fine. I actually feel pretty good, you know? (laughs) When he said the things about not being attracted to her, I literally watched her go, oh, our words build up or they tear down. Do you use your words in a way that fosters intimacy? Solomon the wisest man to ever live in Proverbs 18, 21 said, the tongue has the power of life and death. Do your words build up or do they tear down? Element number two of intimacy is the word energy. Write this down. Genesis 2, 24 says, that's why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife. The word united here literally carries with it this idea that it would bring as much energy as it would require for a person to climb up a mountain. This is the energy you're supposed to bring to your marriage. And a lot of couples, they think to themselves, if I get married, that's when I can settle in. If I can get married, that's when I can stop serving. That's when I can just like let her or let him serve me. If I can just get to that marriage point, then I'll stop pursuing. No, no. The marriage line is the line where you really start. Like pursuit doesn't stop after you get married. Pursuit continues until death do you part. What does this mean? Ephesians 5.21, Paul says this. He's talking to married couples and he says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. This means put the needs and the desires of your spouse ahead of your own. This means obey and follow and trust. This means have their back, be their biggest cheerleader. This means be all in with your spouse for life. This means that whatever you need from me, I'll bring all of my energy to it. Element number three is this. It's the element of sacrifice. Sacrifice means I care about what you care about. Sacrifice means if it's important to you, it's important to me. Back to Genesis 2.24, that's why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife. And here's the word, and they become one flesh. When you get married, Scripture teaches that a miracle happens. Two lives become one. Have you ever heard the phrase, blood is thicker than water? Can I teach you something powerful? Do you know what's thicker than blood? Spirit. 
Jesus himself said in the book of Matthew, what God joins together, let no man put us under. What he's essentially saying is when you become one spiritually, when you become one in marriage, that is the strongest bond. Marriage should be the most beautiful, sacred, safe place imaginable in your life because the two have become one. The idea of sacrifice literally means that for the rest of my life, whatever you want matters more to me than what I want. If we are truly one, I've heard it said about love, that you will know you love someone when meeting the emotional needs of that person feels like an emotional need of your own. Some couples are like, well, well, when do I start doing this when we're dating? You don't start doing this when you're dating. You do this when you get married. It is for a season. We sacrifice for each other. Some years ago, a survey was done by a ministry called Marriage Today, and they interviewed thousands of couples, and they asked the men and the women separately, what is the one thing you want most in marriage. The results were so interesting. For the men, number one, men wanted respect in marriage. It's beautiful. Number two thing that men wanted is men wanted sexual intimacy. Women were interesting. Number one for women is women wanted love. You've probably heard it said before that men want respect, women want love. Well, that's true in the survey. Number two is women wanted communication, like actually talk, actually listen. Number three is women wanted non-sexual physical touch. If you go all the way down the list to get to number 12, finally women would say at number 12 is sexual touch, narrowly edging out number 13, gardening together. (laughs) (laughs) What does it mean? It means that if we're going to pursue intimacy, we care about what our spouse cares about. Okay, so let me talk to the men for just a moment. Men, if the surveys are true, and if this is true for your wife, and you should find this out about her, it might mean that instead of trying to turn everything sexual, it might mean what you do is there's just some time where you just sit and listen. It might mean that you bring home flowers on a Tuesday because it's Tuesday. It might mean that there's times where you wake up before the kids and you sit on your back porch and you pour her a glass of coffee and you just listen and you talk together. Women, It might mean that there are some times when you don't feel like it necessarily, but you show respect to your husband. It might mean that there are some times where this doesn't model what you saw growing up in your home, but you make this decision that part of being submitted as a wife means I'm going to respect my husband. It also might mean that there are some times where your husband desires to have sexual intimacy and you're not in the mood, but a sacrificial love says you before me. It says your needs before my needs. I came to learn this about my wife, that one of the things my wife loves so much is not flowers. And I like getting her flowers, but she doesn't care about flowers. She doesn't really care about cards. She doesn't care about gifts. But I have learned that if I will do the laundry for my wife, one time I walked by with a laundry basket and she said, oh, that is the sexiest thing you have ever done. Sometimes I do the laundry two or three times a day. Got to do whatever it takes. All right, everybody. (laughs) Marriage means we sacrifice for each other. Let me make it really simple. Marriage is you before me. If intimacy is going to thrive, it's you before me, number four. The fourth element of intimacy is trust. Trust. Genesis 2, verse 25, it says, Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Naked means they weren't wearing clothes, but naked is a much bigger word than that. It means they were fully vulnerable. They were fully exposed. There was literally nothing between them, and they felt no shame. I've said this all day, and please forgive me in advance for this. I know this isn't my church, and I'm not trying to be crass. Bobby Brown, who was married to Whitney Houston one time, said, cocaine is a hell of a drug. 
I want to submit to you that shame is a hell of a drug, and I don't mean it in a coarse, crass kind of way. I mean shame is a drug from the pits of hell. Shame isolates us, it destroys us, it mars our soul. Shame causes us to hide. Remember when Adam and Eve sin, what is the first thing they do? It says that they realized they were naked and they hid. What is the first question God asked them in the Garden of Eden? He says, where are you? It's not that God was concerned about where they were. It wasn't that there was a big cosmic game of hide and go seek. God was asking, where's the real you? Where's the you that I created before sin marred your soul? Let me talk to someone in the room. The only way for intimacy to thrive is for trust to be like fluent, flowing. How do we get to trust? It might mean that you need to set up some boundaries in your marriage. Some of you are probably playing too loose with your social media. You have the work wife or the work husband that's gotta stop. Uh, for me, one of the ways that I create boundaries is I just made a decision early in my marriage that I will never be alone with a woman who's not my wife, period. Like, I'm not gonna go to lunch with a woman who's not my wife. I'm not gonna ride in a car alone with a woman who's not my wife. If I need to meet with a woman at the office who's not my wife, my door stays open the whole time. Like, I prioritize my wife above every other relationship because I never want her coming to our bedroom wondering where I've been or who I've been with. If boundaries create freedom, look at me, the goal of sexual intimacy is that you're free, you're naked, and you have no shame. For some of you, you've allowed shame to dictate your story. For some of you, you are so ashamed by something you did or something that was done to you. For some of you, you have held back from your husband or your wife because of shame being such an integrated part of your story. And I just came to say to you, shame can die because it is not the highest voice of authority in your life. It is the name of Jesus that is the highest voice of authority in your life. If this is true, and I believe with all of my heart that it is, some of you might need to have some awkward conversations on the way home. Some of you might need to say to your spouse, listen, I was unfaithful. I'm addicted to something. I've allowed a relationship to get too friendly and too casual, and I've crossed the line. Why? Because for intimacy to thrive, trust has to reign supreme. Can I tell you why? This message means so much to me today. In the last year at my church and in my friends, my relationships, there has been a tidal wave of affairs. And I'm ticked off. In my relationships, in my friend circle, people in my church, there has been affair after affair after affair. And I'm just here to declare to you that that has to stop in the name of Jesus. Let me say it to you like this. We live in a world where 50% of marriages end in divorce. How incredible would it be if your church was a beacon of light and hope to the Tampa Bay area? How incredible would it be if people said, I don't even know what they believe, I don't even know if I believe what they believe, but I want what they have because I see the way they love and treat each other. I, I, can I say something to you? This is gonna sound so weird. God loves you so much that sex is a gift to you. And because God is a good God, he wants it to be amazing for you. The way sex and intimacy thrive is when we value each other. It's when we bring our energy to each other. It's when we sacrifice for each other and it's when we trust each other. I preached something like this at my church some years ago and a man came up to me afterwards and he said, I don't know if you noticed this, but the first letter of each of those words spells the word vest, like to invest something. It got me thinking, it's simply this, if you invest in the stock market or crypto, you understand that in order to get a return, you have to put something in. 
You don't get anything back out unless you invest. The same is true when it comes to intimacy. Let me say this to all the single people in the room. There's no good way for me to end a sermon like this. There's no good way, but I'm gonna give you a challenge. Here's the challenge. If you're here and you are single, my challenge to you is let's try to start a habit for the next seven days. I want you to push so far back from the line sexually because you understand to get God's best, you have to play by God's rules. If you want God's best, you do things God's way. And if you are living sexually outside of God's blessing, let me say this to you, repent today. Repent means to turn and go a different direction. What does it mean? I challenge you for the next seven days. If you're addicted to porn, do whatever it takes to kill the habit. Get rid of your phone, put filters on your devices, throw your your computer into your swimming pool. I don't care what it takes, get rid of it. If you are sleeping with your boyfriend or girlfriend, if you are living with your boyfriend or girlfriend, I want you to hear this. If you want God's best, you play by God's rules. That might mean separating. That might mean literally moving out from your relationship. Some of you have lived together for years and years and years and you've just played house, but you've never made the commitment to each other. It's the reason your heart feels so broken. It's because it's never been complete. Maybe today's the day that you make this decision. We need to get married and play by God's rules to get God's best. I want you to push so far back from the line for the next seven days and start a habit. Stack a win and do it over and over and over again. Maybe you've messed up sexually and you can't undo what you've done. Can I tell you one of the blessings? We serve a God full of love and forgiveness. You can say to God someday on your wedding night, God, I messed up over and over and over again, but on that Sunday in February, I made a decision to honor you with my body. So would you bless this part of my relationship? I wanna talk to all the married people for just a moment. I wanna challenge you for the next seven days, I want you to also start a habit of doing something that pursues intimacy with each other. You're like, well, do I have to have sex every day for seven days? I'm not saying that. It'd be awesome, good for you, but like it would be awesome but it might mean doing things that sacrifice for your spouse. Men, it might mean rubbing her shoulders, not expecting it to go any farther. It might mean a conversation. It might mean sitting down. It might mean walking. It might mean talking. I don't know what it means, but pursue each other and pursue intimacy. And here is the blessing and the promise of God connected to it. When we pursue our spouse, it becomes a testimony to the world around us. And look, let me end with a really quick story. Um, a few years ago, I had the really weird opportunity to do the 60th wedding anniversary renewal for my grandparents. They've been married 60 years. They were so sweet, they were so old, they had to sit on walkers. And I did the, do you still take her for better or worse for what you're poor? And they said, yes, they said, I do. And then they kissed like right in front of me. It was super weird. And, and when they did, there was like this drool chain between them. It was so gross. A year and a half later, I put my arm around my grandfather and we walked down the aisle of a church to stand at her casket. And he said, 61 and a half years, not long enough. That's the testimony I want for me. That's the testimony I want for you. But intimacy has to thrive for that to happen. Can I get a good amen from anybody in here? Amen, amen, amen. Would you bow your head and close your eyes all across this place? Let me pray for you. So God, I pray for a supernatural dose of courage. In a world that's all about me first and getting my needs met, may our church be a church full of people who are committing ourselves to do this your way, God's way, because we believe God's way is the best way. God, I pray for supernatural courage for every single person in the room to push so far back from the line. And in a world of compromise, in a world where it's all about hookup culture, it's all about getting your needs met, God, my prayer is that you will give courage to pursue your way for our sexuality. 
And God, I pray for every married person in this room that their marriage will be the kind of marriage that reflects your love to the world around us. And God, my prayer is that as we do this, you will get the glory and honor for it. May we be people who value, who bring our energy, who sacrifice and who trust so that we can experience intimacy the way you wanted it. With your heads still bowed and eyes still closed, maybe you're here today and you don't know if you're right with God. Maybe this means you've never made a decision to follow Jesus or maybe you've just walked away, but today you wanna start or restart. If this is you, would you just raise your hand right now? Say, Jason, this is me. I need to start or restart a relationship with God. Thank you, yep, thanks. Yeah, awesome, thank you. Thank you, I love it. Here's your moment. Praying a prayer only changes your life if you mean it with your heart. Would you say this with me? Say, Jesus, today I give you my life. From this day forward, I invite you to be my Lord and my Savior. You being my Lord means you call the shots and I'll follow you. You being my Savior means that you save me from my sin. Jesus, I believe that you are the Son of God. I believe you gave your life for me and because of your sacrifice, my life can be made new. So Jesus, take my life, forgive my sins. From this day forward, I'll follow you. I love you, I give you my life and it's in your name I pray, Jesus. Amen. Church family, we just had people pray to make that decision. Let's celebrate like it matters, everybody. Thank you for listening to the Radiant Church Podcast. For service times or giving options, visit us at weareradiant.com.